Hi, everyone. So welcome so much to our inaugural TDI Data Chat. So excited to be here. I'm Michael Lee. I'm the founder of the Data Incubator. For those of you who don't know, we are a training program. We help people learn to become data scientists, data engineers, and data analysts. And if you're actually interested in attending one of our courses, you can learn more at www.thedataincubator.com or you can apply this online on our website for three programs to become a data scientist, a data engineer, or a data analyst. And the application is actually closing November 4th for our January cohort. So really hope that some of you are able to apply and make it. But today I wanted to just start off our data chat, first inaugural data chat with Peter. Peter is actually a data scientist at AWS and he was a TDI fellow back in 2015. So that's been, uh, been quite a journey you've had since then. And we're really excited to have you. Peter previously worked at, well, he's currently working at AWS Robotics and Automation Services team, where he's used leveraging state-of-the-art data science to make it easier to develop intelligent robotic applications at scale. And previously he was a data science consultant at McKinsey, where he was leading teams and working with senior clients and senior managers to help find data solutions to their critical business problems. And before that, he was at uh, Fresenius Medical Care, where he used advanced analytics to impact patient care. And so before we jump in, I actually want to just let the audience know that we'd love to take questions. So feel free to pose questions in the chat, and I'll try to intersperse them in our conversation. But until then, I guess I will use moderator's privilege and prerogative to kick things off. So how are things going, Peter? Uh, doing well. Very happy to be here. Well, wonderful. I'd love to just hear about your data science journey and your tours of duty at these sort of very impressive companies and what you've been doing since uh, being a data a science fellow at, at the Data Incubator. So tell me a little bit about your first stop, Fresenius. Yeah, absolutely. So Fresenius is, for those who don't know, is the world's largest dialysis company. So, you know, the dialysis patients are the ones who, you know, with little to no kidney function, and they need to go to the dialysis centers mostly uh, around three times a week to just basically sustain their lives, right? Get their blood out to the machine, get it cleaned and get the blood uh, pumped into their body. So there was, you know, a lot of data collected during that process. So a lot of my work at Fresenius uh, was around using, trying to find innovative ways using data and data science uh, in the healthcare, especially in the dialysis domain. And so one project uh, was around whether we can predict who are going to be the high-risk patients. So, you know, the dialysis patients, as I mentioned, they are, you know, usually uh, very sick patients that many uh, of them end up in the hospitals actually multiple times a year. So that's not only a financial burden to the system, but also a lot of times those are life and death scenarios. So we definitely wanted to minimize the number of times they end up in the hospitals as much as possible. So with the amount of data that were collected during the, uh, at the clinics, the goal of the project was to predict whether someone would be a high-risk patient in the next 12 months period, right? Meaning they will end up 
likely end up in the hospital multiple times in the next 12 months period. So and are you predicting, is that for your patient population or for the broader population? For the Fresenius patient population. Yeah. So that's what we had data for. And, uh, you know, the model we built, you know, in this case, kind of obviously a lot of data, including the basic things like blood pressure, heart rate, and some more advanced stuff were collected while the patient was at the clinic. And we also uh, took in some other data right, from the census, for example, because we know there's great uh, health disparity in the US. So the census uh, through the zip code can give us things like median household income. Those can also, and life expectancy, so uh, from other sources, and those can also give us uh, quite uh, meaningful predictive powers uh, in our model. So with all those data together, uh, we were looking at, you know, the historically uh, whether someone actually was admitted into uh, the hospital several times during the following 12 months period and build that model to make the predictions. That's super interesting. You have such a unique data set, right? Because I imagine with these patients coming in, you said three times a week, and it sounds like you draw blood each time. So you probably have like the most complete blood panels of anyone. I, I can't imagine getting sort of that level of medical data for clinical data for, you know, with such high, I assume, kind of adherence, such a large population. Yeah, exactly. I think because of the unique characteristics of uh, Dallas's patients, right, Fresenius was able to get some quite unique data sets, which other providers or healthcare companies may not even have access to. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the methods you used? You know, what kind of tools did you use to solve this? What kind of, yeah, what were some of the big hurdles, stumbling blocks that maybe made it a little harder? Yeah, so we went through the entire data science pipeline from kind of getting the data, cleaning the data, exploratory data analysis, model training, evaluation, and uh, deployment. So, you know, and the model was trained, I believe it was, because it's five, six years ago, but I think it's an ensemble of several XGBU models that I, I developed because at that time, I think for tabular data, XGBoost uh, was an extremely popular method, uh, at least at that time. And uh, it was really had a good performance. And I think for things like this, really how you kind of put the different data together, because there were a lot of you know data points, a lot of medical records and what features you want to select was kind of interesting, interesting thing, right? Whether you talk to, you can definitely talk to the experts or you can do some, use some data science methods to select some methods and to really get the right features. Because I think for tabular machine learning, usually feature engineering is one of the most important things uh, to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any useful feature engineering tricks that you remember from this or other projects? Yeah, I think for this project, it was a combination of kind of inter like domain expertise as well as data science techniques. And now I think a lot of those data science techniques are probably not relevant, especially with the rise of um, auto ML, right? And now you have a bunch of like automated solutions and then that can just not only tune your parameters, but also just kind of generate a bunch of uh, unique features for you. So I think with the, I would probably have done it a different way if I have done it today. And I think really that thanks to the amazing contribution of the entire community that has really 
uh, created a bunch of really fantastic tools for data scientists in the past several years. So tell me a little bit about, you know, do you have anything you remember? Like what were some of the factors that were most likely to predict needing to be in the hospital within 12 months? And how did you, the company sort of take advantage of this? How did you, how did you deploy this model and use it? Yeah, absolutely. So there were a bunch of features that were turned out to be predictive. I can't, I don't remember all of them because it's been, it's been a while, but the ones that remember, and this is not only to this particular problem, there were several problems I worked at McKinsey and also I see similar trends, which is the past actually predicts the future really well, right? If you had actually known this patient's and this patient's history, you can use that uh, alone to predict the future fairly decently. And obviously with other metadata that you have at hand, those can also be even more helpful. But that's one thing I remember because I saw that pattern again and again, and not only in the healthcare field, but also in some other field as well. And how was the model ultimately used? What was the, uh, you know, so how would you, so now, great, you have a segment of the population that you've identified as being particularly at uh, risk of needing hospital care. What kind of interventions would you provide? What would you do? Yeah. So the model was run centrally at the analytics team and then sent to the thousands of clinics across the, the nation and the world. So the nurses and doctors at those centers will basically get a report of who are the patients in this clinic that are predicted to be high risk patients. And the goal is so that the nurses and doctors can take, you know, pay further attention to those patients and to see if there's any potential intervention they can do to prevent them from actually being high-risk patients. Mm. Oh, okay. So sort of providing, equipping the doctors and the nurses with some extra information. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you have any sense of success? Like sort of, did you, did you, were you able to measure sort of whether or not those hospital rates went down relative to what you predicted? So it was really uh, widely used, you know, because it was sent to with all the clinics and then got really good feedback. Um, I don't remember the exact statistics on the sort of evaluation. It's been a while, but it's it's quite widely adopted and the doctors and nurses uh, kind of really like this effort because otherwise it's kind of like, you know, they can only rely on their own judgment. Now they have another really valuable data point for them to make decisions on. Okay, cool. So let's moving on, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work at McKinsey, obviously doing client-client work. What were some of the more interesting projects that you engaged in? And yeah, tell us a little bit about the business context and then kind of the technology that you guys ended up using. Yeah. So at McKinsey, it's a consulting company. And uh, you know, one good thing about consulting is you can get to work on very different projects. And I certainly took advantage of that. So I worked on some very technical model and software development projects and some business, more business-oriented analytic and strategy things, as well as some people management, team management, and product management, you know, leadership stuff. So I, I think the one project I think would probably be interesting for this audience is kind of this uh, function mapping uh, automation project. So just a little bit of context, uh, when McKinsey works with a like a merger acquisition client or uh, you know a client that's going through a work transformation where you're constructuring, one of the first things it needs to do is to figure out which employee belongs to which function. So what that means is 
you know, whether this person is an IT person or an HR person or a finance person. So that sounds may sounds easy, but it's actually not because different companies have very different organization structures, job titles, and naming conventions, so on and so forth. So traditionally, this effort was considered not automatable. Um, so it was basically can the analysts who would go through the HR records manually and to figure out which person belongs to which function. And as you can imagine, that was very time consuming.、Um, so. I was pulled into one of the largest、uh, merger and acquisition engagement McKinsey helped in the past、uh, few years, and、uh, both companies had a large number of employees. So as you can imagine, the work just got unmanageable, right? Doing in the in the traditional way. So my task was basically how to automate this process and make it more efficient. And I had like three days to do it. Right? That's a very typical McKinsey. <laughs> so. You know, and then what do you do? I, I think this is very different from the Senius project I talked about, where there was a bunch of data that you can、uh, use. Here, I had no data to begin with, and there's no time to go out and get more data. And so, what I did was basically to ask the associates and the analysts on the project and see when they do this manually, what they do. And some of them tell me, okay, it's actually pretty simple. I look for Certain keywords in their job profiles, like do they have, you know, recruiting or you know HR or human resources in their job title or job descriptions? If so, that's probably an HR person. And I was like, okay, that's great because that's completely automatable, right?、Um, instead of asking a human being to do that, we can write a script to look for those keywords and to look probably even more columns than a human being can, right, at a given time, and do some basic text processing. So not only engineer, we can look for engineering and all those things, and also like you know, I basically write those things down and create a, a simple logic.、Uh, what if you have the, the keywords from multiple categories tagged within one person? What do you do with that? But it's basically a heuristic approach that ended up getting about seventy percent of the people in their correct functions, and that saved the team a lot of time, which. You know they they really appreciate it, but and after that, and that was kind of the starting point. And after that, we thought, okay, this is actually a problem that's pretty prevalent. It's not like a one-time thing. You know, do this all the time with different clients. So maybe we should invest more efforts and to build a really machine learning enabled solution. So we went out to gather some data.、Uh, there was actually we're actually able to get some data to build a machine learning model and. I like to start, and the, you know, this with any sort of models, NLP or Tableau or computer vision. I like to start with a simpler model, and then get complicated after that. So, you know, the fast text framework of developed by Facebook became my logistic regression in NLP because it's a、uh, it's very easy to use and very fast to train. It's it's not something I would never start with something that would take a day to run as my first model. So, tried that and and you did this. POC, right? Proof concept to say, look, with this data, with this fairly straightforward framework,、uh, we're actually able to make pretty good predictions. So, fast forward like a year or so, with more support, I was leading a team to develop a deep learning a transformer-based model, and also integrating this model into existing softwares as well as putting some user interface on top of it. So that you know, other teams and analysts can use it as well. Cool. So you said it sounds like you,、uh, fast text was your primary tool 
for that. So that was, initially. yeah, that was, yeah, initially that was, and that's my go-to tool for if I start out with any NLP project because it's fast to train. It's uh, fairly easy to use. And uh, I, I like to get a baseline of how well the model can do with some, you know, fairly straightforward models and then get more complicated after that. Yeah. So what was the ultimate kind of you, uh, the form look like? What did it kind of, what did it look like for the end user? Was it a GUI kind of app? I'm trying to think of, yeah. It sounds like cause what you're able to do is like maybe do 70, 80% of the classifications, but then the last bit still has to be done by hand um, or at least yeah. some last tail still has to be done by hand. So how do you sort of build that workflow? Yeah. So the user interface is basically a simple UI for the users to execute this algorithm and then get a, a downloadable file with the predictions attached with each person, the predicted function and the confidence levels so that people can manually verify. And as we've learned through this project and through many other projects, uh, many times machines alone cannot solve the problem. We will need human beings to verify. And, and, and this is kind of different by project, like for some project where the accuracy the cost of inaccuracy is low, for example, like predicting whether someone is gonna click on an ad, right? Then I guess you don't need a human to review that because if you get it wrong, I guess it's, it's fine. It's not a, not a big deal. But on the other spectrum, if you're designing a self-driving car solution, you really have to, to get it right. And that's why I kind of we're still, we're always like five years away from having a, a car that's actually drive, can drive on the road. And this particular situation, like function mapping is closer to the self-driving car situation. Okay, nobody's gonna die if we get it wrong, but it's actually gonna have a lot of influence, the company's goals, the performance and, and jobs, right? And so we, we definitely want to get those things right. And, you know, having machines to do them, no matter really how good the model will get, I don't think that will be the right thing to do. So we'll always want to have some human beings to review the results, and the goal is they don't really have to really need to make less and less changes. Uh, they can review it, approve it, go, right? Initially, they might have to change a larger proportion of the employees, but then later on, hopefully with, with the model getting more and more accurate, they can change very, very less and just make sure all the corner special situations are covered. Uh, all right, thank you. And yeah, if, if you have questions, please feel free to pose them. We'll, uh, we're gonna take all of your questions and sort of uh, ask Peter them at the end. And before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your most current role. You're now at AWS working on robots. So tell me a little bit about the business use case there and the kind of technology and tools you're using. Yeah, so I joined AWS uh, several months ago and uh, unfortunately not allowed to talk about the details of the business because it's not public knowledge at this point. And but you know, I, I'm happy to talk about some of the really similarities and differences of what I experienced uh, between like McKinsey, Fresenius, and, and AWS. So I think McKinsey and AWS are both very large decentralized companies. There's actually a lot of similarity between them. You know, McKinsey has something called obligation to dissent. AWS or Amazon has something called disagree and commit which are basically the same thing that just encourage employees to share their ideas, no matter how junior you are, 
and then really wants to foster an environment where the best idea wins. And both companies are like have enough stuff or more than enough stuff for for anybody to do. So it's always helpful to know what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And the difference is also quite clear. Where I think, you know, at McKinsey or at Fresenius, when I complete a piece of analysis, a piece of work, what I typically, the question I typically get is around, okay, that's great analysis, but how can I use it? Right? How can I help my bottom line? And questions like that, which, which is more business oriented. But at AWS, the questions are more like, okay. Is there a better method, or a better algorithm that can deliver a better performance? Is is your code or method generalizable? And so those are those more technical oriented stuff. So uh, that's a pretty clear difference that I already felt so far. And uh, I, I think it just all makes sense. Like it's you know there are very different businesses and also the people in those two companies. Although I was in like similar function, but the people around me. Have quite different backgrounds, right?、Uh, either more business oriented or more technology oriented. Okay, wonderful. And I think maybe we'll move on to some of the questions that the audience has. So, from this is from Hannah. Why did you hear about and ultimately decide to pursue a data science career? And how did you know it was the right path for you? Yeah, great question. So I think I have a little bit of story there. I was in grad school. Majoring in statistics, and was wondering what do I do? What job should I should I pursue? And I had no idea at that point. But and a lot of my classmates and friends,、uh, they decided to do something that, in my opinion, were not super related to statistics and mathematics. We were learning. I had a bachelor degree in mathematics. So and at that time, I really just wanted to use all the stats and math I learned to do something. And I don't want to be like. You know, high school teacher or something. So I thought I want to use those things to solve real world problems. And、uh, I did some research and I was trying to to see what is out there in the world that for me to do that. And what I discovered, and that was in 2013, by the way. What I discovered the closest to what I was looking for was actuarial science. And I actually passed the first actuarial science exam and got my、uh, an internship in an insurance company. And and during that internship, that was summer 2013, I discovered something called data science. Actually, two articles had really great impact on me. One is a Harvard Business Review article called "Data Science is the Sexiest Job of the 21st Century."、Uh, it basically says, oh, you know, now with the abundance of data, we need more and more people to analyze them and utilize them. And I thought, and it talks about a lot, you know,、uh, the industry uses of data science way beyond insurance, and it talks about the use of much more sophisticated mathematical, statistical, and computer science theory,、uh, techno- techniques and theories beyond what is used in actuarial science. So I thought, wow, this is this is sounds like what I want to do. And、uh, another article, which was written by McKinsey, actually McKinsey Global Institute, that predicted. By 2018, that was 2013, and by 2018, there will be a shortage of about like you know 150,000 data scientists in the U.S. alone. And by that point, I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm going to be a data scientist. And、uh, I I feel like really、uh, lucky actually to to find something that kind of just matched what I wanted to do. And so I, I I'm really glad I made that decision. One of the best decisions I've ever made. 
Oh, okay, that's really cool. And on a totally different side of that spectrum, what's been the most fun data science tool you've discovered recently? Or maybe like top, yeah, most fun data science tool you've discovered recently. Yeah, if I would, uh, if I would, you know, for all the tools, I would say the auto ML, I mean, there are a bunch of really fascinating things, but the auto ML is something that I, I feel is really a game changer. It's not completely new, but I, I think really they're getting better and better. And uh, now I think something I'm, I've been following is the data-centric AI movement. Andrew N and several other really prominent figures have talked a lot about recently. So, and they're basically saying, you know, look, we have worked so much on coding in the past, you know, decade or so. It's getting so good. Now we should focus more on data, right? And uh, I think a big part of it is, you know, this auto ML movement and all the existing, you know, baseline models and structures. And I think that's that's really a game changer that can first, you know, include a lot more people in this machine learning process. And secondly, people can have a lot more energy focused on something else, like, for example, getting better data or, you know, augmenting their data and, and fixing their data, and then which will lead to even better machine learning models. Yeah. Uh, and what are some of your favorite auto ML packages? You mentioned auto glue on any other ones? You know, Google's auto ML is great. You know, and, you know, data robot has some good things H2O. They all have some, you know, really, really neat stuff. Yeah. Cool. And then I guess uh, maybe the other useful question would be what are sort of your top five most used data science tools? Like in a, in a typical day of the open source tools you use, what are the top five that you end up using? I think that's going to be highly dependent who you're talking to. So I mean, take what just I yourself. say for, yeah. for, for what it's worth. And by the way, just a little bit of context. I, I used to be a R programmer mostly. And right now I basically exclusively program in Python. So a lot of what I say is going to be a mixture of Python and, and R packages. So I think for Python, it's more, you know, everybody uses pandas, everybody uses NumPy and, and you know, Matplotly and all those things. So they are obviously going to be most popular. I think for R, you have a little bit more of a choice. The fire or data.table, I think that's, a, you know, too big, the most popular packages for, for data wrangling. And uh, an R shiny, which a lot of people probably don't know, is a package that's used to create standalone data products uh, by writing just R itself. I know Python has a Python dash, which is basically the equivalent of Shiny, right, in Python. And uh, those are really great. I, I mean, I had used R Shiny to, to did some really interesting stuff. Um, and I think what's great about it is it can provide a user interface on top of basically anything you do in R and Python, which is a lot of stuff, right? And then think about, you know, put what you do under a cover and give a user interface, some buttons that anybody can go in and connect, right? And be able to execute your model and get the re results back. So that's, that's a very helpful tool. I mean, if people are interested, I'm happy to, to talk more about that. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So have you used Streamlit? No, I have not. Okay, it's sort of, I think of it as the Python version of R Shiny, like build a dashboard. I'm using a very declarative model where you sort of do your calculations and the kind of GUI code in the same file, so to speak. 
So yeah. I, I've been a big fan of that. It sounds like it's a competitor to Python Dash, which I've only used like once or twice. I know awesome. I haven't quite got into it, but sort of. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. For folks who are interested, it's stream and then LIT. And then, awesome. okay, so you, you mentioned it, so I have to go into this. Uh, what prompted you to migrate from R to Python? Yeah. So I started using R because I majored in statistics and R was what it was taught, right? So that's quite natural to me. And then I basically just used R exclusively, except when I was at Data Incubator because we had no other choices. <laughs> you know, R was always more kind of just easier for me because, you know, that was what taught us at school. But then what I realized is, you know, the, the, the R and Python debate has been going on forever, right? And different people have different opinions and, and all that. I certainly, I'm biased as well. So again, take it for what it's worth. And I feel like R was really great for standalone analysis, right? If you are doing something that you don't want to get integrated with anything else, R is probably really great, right? Like R Shiny, a perfect example. You can, that's probably, I would like to try to streamlet, but I think for R Shiny, that's, among all the packages I know, that's the fastest way to develop a standalone application using any language that I'm, I'm aware of. But the downside, it's very hard to integrate that with anything else. Right? If you're, say, you're, you know, you're part of Amazon and you built this great R Shiny application, you want it to be seen on the Amazon website or, or AWS website or something. That's basically impossible unless you rewrite it in some other languages. So I think it's our this kind of standalone, uh, isolate nature. There's definitely pros and cons. Pros is very standalone. You don't if you are just all by yourself. You have no other teams, no other support. You want to do some great things. R is great, but if you are part of a larger effort, I think Python it just can offer you more flexibility and options when working with others and. Um, Really, I think the Python's popularity has grown really, really rapidly. I mean, so does R, but really even more so for Python. And that really is everything because all the packages out there, all the, you know, even Stack Overflow answers, right? The more people use it, the more support and resources you can find. I think that really is quite, it's quite, uh, you know, a game changer. So I, my recommendation now is, you know, go with Python if you're just starting out and have you know, haven't really invested, heavily invested in, you know, either languages, but go with whatever you feel is right. If you really know what you're doing. Yeah, that's great advice. And kind of fun fact for those of you who are interested in these sorts of things, I saw an analysis of the top 10 programming languages. This isn't just for data science, but overall. And all, uh, Python was the only language in the top 10 that did not, that was sort of what they called organic growth. It kind of slowly grew. And it, because all the other nine out of the 10 languages had one of two factors going for them. They were either the exclusive language for a platform. So think about like Swift is how you program for iPhone or JavaScript is how you program for the web, right? They have that kind of exclusive. If you want to program for this, you have to use this language uh, or they had a large company behind them. So like Java has this huge company behind it, right? It has Sun behind it. And Python is the only one that's maybe truly kind of community driven. There, there's like, you know, you can do data science in Python. It's great for that, but you can also do it in R. You can also do it in MATLAB. It doesn't have that kind of exclusivity and it doesn't have a company backing it. And it's the only one in the top 10 languages that doesn't have uh, one of those two factors. So I thought that was kind of interesting and probably speaks to sort of something about the Python community and the sort of the nature of the language. 
that that yeah, it's achieved really so much interesting fact. I, I, I thought so, so, so since you mentioned it. Switching over back to the questions people are posing, I have another question here from Anonymous. Uh, could you give us some advice on how non-CS PhDs should transfer their career path to data science? So your background is in math. Uh, yeah, in math and right? stats, I did not major in CS. So, and also, uh, especially at McKinsey, we had, I had several colleagues who were non-CS PhDs. Some of them uh, had PhD in uh, bioengineering or electron, uh, you know, uh, mechanical engineering. One even had a PhD in anthropology, which I thought had nothing to do with data science, but apparently there was a lot to do with the data science because he was doing a lot of uh, data-driven research in anthropology that really gave him uh, the skill sets needed to become a data scientist. So, so my recommendation is, I mean, if you are here, I assume you are interested in data science and you probably have done some work in your domain that's really data-driven. So uh, if you really wanted to switch to data science and kind of hone in on those projects that are really data-driven and uh, just you know, leverage more of your data science skill, because data science is something that's, the good thing about it is the skills that are used in one industry or one domain it's very similar to the skill that's used in another industry or domain. So it's very uh, transferable and um, you know, just get more uh, hands-on experience with data doing whatever you're doing. I think you can be uh, more prepared for a data scientist career. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's kind of a, I think that's kind of an interesting paradox because this question comes up a lot, right? Like what's more important for data science, the math part the, or the statistics part or the programming part? And there's this sort of interesting conundrum where you can be like moderately productive if you know programming because like code gets produced, right? Although maybe the analysis isn't great, but it's very hard to be moderately productive if you only know math because the way you do stuff is always through code. So that kind of becomes the bottleneck. Yeah. And so I think for that reason, if you have that kind of, if you don't have a CS background, it is so important to learn how to code and to, to sort of get caught up on that because For sure. otherwise you don't have that. You can't sort of show up on day one and at least start producing work. So I want to go to a question by Kyle and he asks, what's the most important thing you learned as a TDI fellow? I think there was a bunch of things. It was a very rewarding experience. I remember, like I said, I, I was using mostly R at that time. So that was the first time I was using Python in, in a serious way. And that was the first time I used Spark and some other uh, data science languages and techniques. And also, I remember the problem sets were quite challenging and, and comprehensive. I was in DC at that time and with, I think, six others. I remember we were working on the problem sets at you know, 11 p.m. And, and everybody in the office and a really fun environment because we're like working towards really interesting problems and a lot of new things and also having someone there to that you can talk to and, and you can learn from. So it's a, it's a very uh, fun and, and really productive uh, environment. So, and we formed a lot of great relationships among the, the fellows, which is very rewarding. And also I mentioned this, but I got you know, the Fresenius, right? I got my first data science, full-time data science job through data incubator, right? through the relationship I, I built there. And, and uh, um, so that was certainly uh, extremely rewarding, obviously. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. 
Let's see, another question from Akash. I really like this one. How has the expectation of interpretability in models evolved over the course of your career? Do people expect models to be, uh, are people okay with models that are more black box or, or are they more insistent that they'd be more transparent? Yeah, I think from what I've seen, people demand more of uh, more transparency in models. You know, but that's, it's always, uh, it's interesting, especially in the deep learning field, uh, it's actually going a different way because when the models are getting more and more complex, it's harder and harder to interpret those models, but there's a constant demand of explaining those things. And, you know, in all kinds of uh, conferences nowadays, you, you can see, uh, you know, somebody talking about interpretability of different models. And in some fields like healthcare or finance, sometimes you have to explain the model. Uh, otherwise, just no way you can get it deployed. So, and, you know, even more to that, there's the talk about bias in AI and, and, and so forth. So I think this is a topic that's getting more attention. I think it's going to get even more attention uh, going forward. So I, I would say it, it's quite important to really get a good understanding of how to interpret the model instead of just building one that, that makes good forecast. Wonderful. I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, as much as we like to think about data science as like, oh, here's some ground truth data, let me plug in a model and that's truth. In reality, you're gonna encounter all sorts of new corner cases and they're gonna generate basically what look like bugs and a human's gonna have to debug it. And if you just have a model that's like, here's a black box, that doesn't help the humans who have to debug the system and figure out what's going on. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's ultimately, we do need some amount of explicability in order to really use these things in production. Yeah. So Ramsey has an interesting question. What do you think is the minimum threshold of data size for a project to be doable? And how do you figure out what that number is? I think that really depends. You know, obviously, the more data, the better. Everybody knows that. But uh, the challenge we normally face is, uh, except for those very large tech companies, I think, you know, we may not always have a lot of data. And, you know, I think someone said this, I uh, can't remember who, but, uh, you know, now it's a day you, you need big co courage to admit you have small data. <laughs> Right? <laughs> but that's a, that's a reality. If you want to solve a lot of interesting problem, newer problem in some you know, not, you know, newer domains, you are always faced with this small data problem. So I think it's really hard to give a threshold of how many like, number of records you need. But I can say you certainly don't always need you know, billions or millions of records to, to start your data science project. Right. And now the data centric AI uh, movement that, uh, that's going on, I think that's really also putting a spotlight on, on this effort. Like if we just have limited amount of data, can we, you know, and augment the data or, you know, through some other ways, get more data or better data, right? That can really allow us to build like a better model. By the way, on that front, even if we have the same number of records, if you can clean the data or make it very high quality, even with, without increasing the number of records, your data will be worth more. So if you have a lot of data, but there are a lot of noise in it, it's probably not as good as, you know, as maybe a smaller data with very high quality. 
So there are a lot of factors uh, in, in this space. Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, I think that is, if you look at the open AI papers, that's one of the things they talk about is that they, yeah, we just get Reddit and a bunch of the other kind of common data sources. But the thing we do well is we clean the data well. And that sort of, uh, at least where they seem to ascribe a lot of their sort of secret sauce, that and the, you know, the million dollars they're willing to throw at GPU bills to yeah. get a more powerful model. But, you know, the cleaning is important too. Do you have any examples from your own career that you can share where sort of you've been able to so do some basic data cleaning that really helped improve the end model? Yeah. So just use this function mapping automation project I talked about. When I looked at the data, the historical data we gathered, there were a lot of mislabeling because the data was somebody kind of came up with a label and different people could have different standards. So you could have like literally the same job title being mapped into two different functions. I think one thing you want to do when as you know as a, as a principal is to make sure you have consistent standards across different labelers. You know, that standard doesn't have to be perfect, but it's better than no standard at all. That itself can really uh, go a long way in terms of getting a high quality, higher quality data. So that that's, you know, great and lofty language, but ultimately it sounds like you just had to go there and fix the labeling. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's very true. And uh, I hope in the future that can get automated in some way. Hopefully there'll be some tools out there that can, I mean, there are still, there are already people who are doing some automatic ways of detecting these things, but I think by and large, human involvement is still quite important at this stage. I hope that that will change in the future. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question from Ramsey. What would you say about bias in your data? And this is about the sort of Fresenius case, use case. It's been widely reported that certain ethnicities and individuals in lower income communities and also minority communities experience a lower availability and quality and timeliness to healthcare. How do you think about that when you're building your model? Yeah. So I think definitely we want to make sure there's several things in it. We want to make sure this model is not biased and uh, we check for that. And there's a probably even better example for that where I was creating a job matching algorithm where, you know, and the algorithm, it just matches people to jobs and just basically recommends the optimal candidates for specific jobs. I think that's even more, an even better example of like why we shouldn't, why we want to check for, for bias. And, and we actually did that. We measured the different ethnicities and age group and all the other demographic groups and to make sure our model is not biased towards any particular uh, interest group. I think that's extremely important thing to, 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 to work on for any model. And really, there are a bunch of ways to correct that problem. And if our data is biased, and, and here again, we're talking about the quality of data, how we can make the data quality even better by correcting some records, removing some records, using some techniques to augment the data to really get to something that's uh, that's less biased and hopefully not biased at all. Uh, but, you know, I would say in an ongoing conversation, and it's not a problem that has been completely solved in my opinion. And uh, But I think it's a really important problem that, you know, everyone I think involved in AI and machine learning should, should pay close attention to. 
Absolutely. And I have another question from Richard. If you don't have a data science team on hand, how can you convince your company to hire one? And how do you help companies get started into looking at data science so they can, as a way of getting a competitive advantage? Sounds like it's more of a sort of a business question. Like, how do you justify the, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, need, uh, the need for a data science team? That's a great question. I think a lot of reports uh, and articles uh, have said there is not one single industry that's not going to be touched by AI, machine learning, or data analytics. And so really any field, and through my, my time in Kinsey, where I got the opportunity to interact with different clients of different industries, and it's very clear to me like this need and you know this is a trend every every company wants to go and, and probably have to go because everybody else is, is going uh, so and i would say to start off it's almost like a you know playing a puzzle right piece by piece don't start by boiling the ocean i want to create the biggest the fanciest ai possible right start by solving some pain points and uh i like to you know if i started somewhere i like to, to go talk to people and ask them what their pain points are and what that they wish are uh, can be done better. Say if you are talking to some people in HR or in finance and say, hey, in your day-to-day -day work, what you can do, what you wish that can be more data-driven, what you think is too repetitive and you want to get rid of, and then soon or later you'll discover something that you can contribute. And then start small and then give them something that, that's impactful and gradually kind of make the case of even bigger investment in this field. Yeah it, yeah, it takes time. And I think eventually people will get it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And if you, you know, that th this is one of the classic cases where sort of walking before you run is so important, as you said. Uh, and it's about sort of finding a small project that you can kind of get done so that you can justify those larger investments. I've seen that yeah. some companies have kind of gone about it the other way around where they say, oh no, we want to build out a huge program and build out all the infrastructure and hire up these huge teams so oh, that we can get a lot of data science done quickly. And you often find that's not very sustainable because management is looking for their ROI pretty quickly. And you have to be able to talk to, talk to senior managers and explain like, well, you know, we built out all this infrastructure, but we haven't done any use cases and that's just not going to fly. So you, yeah, I think yeah. it is really walk before you run. Um, yeah, exactly. You, and if you are interested, actually, you can Google the business of data science, which is a course offered by Pragmatic Institute, our parent company. At the Data Incubator, we actually helped develop this course, but it's marketed officially through the Pragmatic Institute. And you, uh, you'll see this course called the business of data science. And it's about understand understanding data science fundamentals, identifying the profitable data projects, like what will actually help your company move the bottom line, and then developing a data-driven work culture. So if you're interested, you know, I highly recommend you go search for that. Just called the Business of Data Science at the Pragmatic Institute. Thanks, Richard. Let's see. All right, so we have some more questions. So one of them is just asking about anomaly detection. So tell us a little bit more about your favorite anomaly detection uh, techniques and you know what you're doing to yeah, what, what are your favorite tools in that area? Well, I think anomaly detection, uh, there were legacy methods. Right? You kind of calculate the distribution and find the outliers. But I think there are 
some more newer, like, you know, even deep learning based approach that's actually coming out. So, you know, I actually feel like, you know, again, my basic philosophy is I always start with the simpler ones and to see how well it works, especially in the business environment. Mention ROI, it's something, uh, it's very different from when you do things in academia, right? Because if you, you know, analyze, use a logistic question in academia, nobody would, uh, would think that's a good thing, right? It's just, but in the industry, it could very well be a good thing, right? Yeah, based on the right situation and the, the right investment and, and so on, it could be a valid product. And it could, and many times, it's even a better a starting point that can lead you to um, a more complicated stuff. So, you know, I, I tend to, again, anomaly detection, use some of the traditional methods to start with. And if I need to, I'll go even more sophisticated methods. Uh, got it. All right. And then final question. This is from Liao Yuan. And they're asking, I'm a PhD in physics. I don't have much experience in data science per se, but they have a lot of experiences in data mining and data analysis. So how do you think, of, uh, I don't know, how, how, it's a question about an applica the application, right? How do you think about, how do you become a data science fellow of the data incubator? So any application advice for folks? I don't know if the application process has changed since I applied, <laughs> but I would say hone in your technical skills first. I mean, we are in a very, like a golden age of learning new things. There are just a bunch of online courses, uh, papers you can read, uh, videos you can watch, and and uh, and really try to get some head start on those things. And then, obviously, joining a bootcamp like Data Incubator can greatly help you uh, with the latest and greatest, and have your peers on the side with you. But you know, have some head start can definitely help you when you're applying to a data science boot bootcamp program. You, by no means, you need to be an expert, but have a head start there. And also, I think just talk, have a real passion of, for data science, because I feel like if you are really interested in something, if you really like doing it, you're going to learn much faster than someone who may not be as interested. So definitely, I think show your passion, show your interest, um, and uh, even better if you have some experience with that, that's even, even better. I think those are probably some of the tips. And again, they, they may be outdated. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you so much. I think those are very good tips. So I'm just wrapping this up. But thank you so much for joining us in our inaugural TDI data chat. We're excited that you could be here with us. And as a reminder, if you're interested in the data science, data engineering, or data analytics fellowships for January, the application closes November 4th. So I'd suggest you guys apply and you can do those at, you can apply at the data incubator.com. Thanks so much, Peter. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I always consider data incubator as the place that jump started my career. So really happy to be here and share my experience. And uh, yeah, good luck to everyone who is in this data journey. And uh, yeah, and uh, let's, I hope we can uh, keep in touch. Absolutely. Take care. All right, take care. Bye.